I love Alex's theme, running instead of autism defines him. Running instead of autism defines him. How often in life are we tempted to let something other than successfully running the race for Jesus and with Jesus define us? That young man has every reason in the book to let autism define who he is, but he has deliberately chosen to say, that's not going to define me. Running is going to define me. Even if at the end of the race, as it was in the race you saw, he collapsed into the arms of a paramedic, he came in second. And sometimes when we run the race with Jesus and for Jesus, we get over the finish line and we collapse into his arms and he has to act like a paramedic. But you know the issue in how good you look when you get finished is that you finish, that you run the race. And that running that race and running that race successfully is what defines us. Not whatever it is that the opposition may be or the problems may be, etc. And that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying to an audience of folks that he is writing to. Run that race with Jesus. Run the race of life with Jesus to his honor and to his glory. And how do we run that race? We run that race knowing that he is the one that we are running with and we are running to. But we also run that race with the joy of the Lord. Our theme verse for this year is the joy of the Lord is our strength. And he gives us that joy. Not happiness, but joy. The joy of who he is. The joy of his presence. The joy of the goal, the purpose that he has set for us. Run that race with his joy. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Now through Easter Sunday, I'm going to be in a series of messages from the book of Hebrews. I have been wanting to preach a series of messages from Hebrews for a long time, and now I get to get some of it out of my system, okay? It's only about four messages, and the book of Hebrews has got a lot more packed into it than that, but we're going to look at some of it. The theme of the book of Hebrews, and my sermon outline is contained as an insert in your bulletin. The theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus and the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not really sure who the author of the book of Hebrews is. I know a lot of people believe in Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews. Uh, personally, I don't, and uh, before you throw a hymnal at me, uh, let me tell you why I don't. Uh, when I was in seminary and taking New Testament Greek, if I had to translate out of Paul's epistles at nighttime, then uh, as a homework assignment, I knew I could get it done. If I had an assignment out of Hebrews, I was going to take Tylenol and then start uh, doing the translating. It is just, it's very close to classical Greek. It is very difficult uh, to translate and to work with, just much more complicated, etc. It's just a whole different style of writing. So we're not really sure who was that who was the writer? Several things we do know about the writer. Number one, he had a, whoever that person was had an immense vocabulary because there are all kinds of words in, in Greek in the book of Hebrews that you don't find in the rest of the New Testament. It's a very immense vocabulary. Secondly, they had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament. Probably whoever this writer was was Jewish in their background because of the handle they've got on what we know as the Old Testament, Jewish tradition, etc. The book appears to be written to a group of Jewish Christians whose world was literally falling apart. We think 
that the book was probably written to a group of Christians who were living either in the city of Rome or around the city of Rome because it has some Italian-type aspects to it. And this is what I want you to imagine as this book would have come to the folks in those days. Imagine a tiny house church where you've got maybe 10 to 15 at max believers that are gathered in this church, excuse me, gathered in this little house, and their world's falling to pieces. They have said that they were going to be followers of Jesus and serve Him and love Him, but they never anticipated the opposition and the persecution that was coming their way. There were two main persecutions of the early church. The first one, if I'm correct, was under Claudius the emperor, but the worst was the Neronian persecution under the emperor Nero. Nero burned the city of Rome as a backdrop to his violin playing. I don't know if that's because he was such a terrible violin player or he just wanted attention. But he had to scapegoat somebody, and so he scapegoated the Christians for it. And he persecuted them relentlessly. And they knew as they met in that room that they would be not only persecuted, many of them would probably face martyrdom for following the Lord Jesus. They had some questions. Why had God not protected them? Why was God silent? When you're watching loved ones losing their lives, when you are losing your business, when your world seems to be falling around you and God seems to be silent and saying nothing and doing nothing, what is wrong with God? And that was a question that they would have had. And so when they received this book, they would have sat there in probably silence and in the agony of what they were going through, and begin to listen to these words. In chapters 1 through chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus is presented as the great high priest, and His work for us on the cross and in His resurrection saves us. And as they sat there and listened to the writer saying to them, why are you going to place everything on the line? Why are some of you going to die for the sake of Christ? Why are you losing your business? Why are you going through what you're going through? You're going through it for Jesus' sake. And this is who Jesus is, and this is why it is worth it. And then in chapter 10, verse 19, through chapter 13, and verse 17, the writer moves to the application of what he's been teaching in the earlier chapters. How does this apply to your life? How does this get you through the suffering? What is the, the, the strength that God gives you? What is this joy? So let's join the writer, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. First admonition He gives to these folks is run in freedom to Jesus. Run in freedom to Jesus. Now, this is the picture that he is painting here. 
In that day, and again, we think this was written to a group of Jewish Christians living in or around Rome. The center of Rome was the great Roman Colosseum. And the Roman Colosseum was a huge facility. Now, if you will look at the picture that's on the screen, you will notice that in the center of the Colosseum, you have this large area, which would have been where the various events, athletic events, would have been held. And the running track for marathons would have gone in the circumference of the Colosseum. Now, if you move up from the Colosseum floor, you will notice that it's got a stadium-like aspect to it with all the various seating that would have been there. Literally thousands of people would have been in that Colosseum. When he talks here about we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, if you had walked into the Roman Colosseum and let's say you were going to run a marathon around the floor of that Colosseum, you would have stood at the floor of that Colosseum and you would have looked up around you and you would have seen thousands of people around you. Now, it was very popular in the Roman Empire in those days to dress in togas, which meant that you would have been in white. And so if you can imagine thousands of people surrounding you, you looked up, it would have looked like clouds that were literally surrounding you. And that's that idea that he's got here of we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses as we run this race. Now, who are this cloud of witnesses that he's saying you are surrounded by? Well, in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the chapter immediately preceded the one that we've been looking at, is what we call the roll call of faith. And what the writer does is he goes all the way back to Abraham, and he just swings through the entirety of the history of the Jewish people, and he names one leader after another. He talks in there about Abel and how Abel in faith gave an offering. He talks about how Noah in faith built an ark and went through the flood. He talks about how Abraham, one of those witnesses in faith, left a land where he was prospering and okay and went into a place where he didn't know where he was going and what was going to happen. He talks about Sarah, his wife, who in faith God said, I know you're old and you're past childbearing age, but I'm going to give you a child. You're going to name him Isaac and I'm going to raise him up. And he's going to be greatly used of me. He talked about Jacob and Jacob's faith in trusting the Lord. About Joseph and when Joseph was in Egypt and how he had to trust God even when he was thrown into a pit. He talks about Moses and Moses being one of the great leaders of faith and receiving the Ten Commandments. He talks about David, the greatest king Israel ever knew and how he had to lean on the Lord in faith. He talks about Samuel. And so this idea is that these witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses that you're surrounded by as you run this race for Jesus, just look back on these folks who have already run the race and run the race successfully. Listen to the other description that he gives of these folks in verse 35 through 38 of chapter 11. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in caves and in dens. All these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what he's saying there is 
Listen, folks, I know you're getting ready to go through a rough time. I know that you're going through some difficult times right now. I know that this persecution that you're anticipating is really going to be one of the most difficult things you've ever faced. But I want you to look up, not down. And when you look up, I want you to see these leaders through the centuries who have stood for the Lord and have given everything. But I also want you to see that this cloud of witnesses that you are surrounded by, if you will, in this coliseum of life that you're about to run this race in. I want you to see all the unnamed people who gave everything that God called upon them to give. And they did it, and they did it successfully. They've gone before you. They have set the track for you. They have set the tempo for you. Let their lives challenge you. Now, one of the other aspects of running the race in that Colosseum was in the center of the Colosseum would have been the emperor of Rome. And so as you stepped onto the track, you would have looked around and you would have seen thousands of people watching you. But then you would have looked straight ahead and you would have seen the most important person in that Colosseum, the emperor of Rome. And as much as you would want to please the thousands who were there, the person that you wanted to please above all the rest was the emperor. And when he says we are running unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith, he is saying we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, oh yes, but above all else, we stand before Jesus, we run before Jesus, we run to Jesus, he is our emperor that we are running to. Now, how do we do that run? How do we run? Notice verse 1. He says we've got to lay aside every weight, all the stuff that holds us back from running. Now, back in those days, uh, the Greek, they carried this over from Greek society. But when they ran, the Greeks, um, let's, how can I diplomatically say this? Uh, they didn't have a big problem with, with partial, almost complete nudity, okay? Uh, and so their idea was that when they ran, you took all the clothing off you, had, you needed to take off in, other, in, order, in other words, to get down the track. Because that clothing was just seen as catching air and holding you back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the idea here when he says lay aside everything is mainly he's saying here, just strip off whatever you got to strip off from your life in order to get the run on, Okay. Anything in our lives that's holding us back from serving Jesus and running the race for Jesus, he's saying strip it off, get rid of it. Notice he goes on, he says, the sin which clings so closely to us. I love honey, but I don't know if you have this problem or not. Whenever I eat honey, I get it all over my fingers. I manage to get it on the table, and then everything that I touch sticks to my fingers and my hands. I cannot eat honey in any kind of capacity that I don't just want to get junk stuck all over me. Now, the idea he's saying here is don't have sticky fingers when it comes to sin. Get rid of all the sin. that, that And all of us have got one or two sins, one or two places in our lives that, that we're more given to sinning in that area, to disobeying the Lord. It might be gossip. It might be lust. I mean, it might be consumption of money. I mean, it might be insecurity. It might be worrying. 
I don't know what it might be. We've all got a place or two that we get real sticky with sin. And he says, what you got to do is lay aside the stuff that, that gets clings to us. So we're most easy for us to fall into. He says, get rid of that. Notice what he says, I love in verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every way the sin which clings so closely. And then notice what he, the pronoun he's going to use here. And let us run. First person, plural, let us run. We run this race together. God designed for us to run this race together. Don't run, try to run the race by yourself. I remember back many years ago when I was in high school. And this time of year we did track. One thing I always remember about the 600-yard dash, we all ran it together. And it was something about being in there together. We all helped set the pace for each other. We encouraged each other. We stayed after it together. So he says, let us run it together. Run the race together. Run with intensity. And then he says, run it with, he says, he says run that race. And the idea there literally is keep on running. It's continuous. Every day, we keep on running. And he says, run with endurance. Now, if I'm going to run with endurance, verse 1, it means I'm not going to run with impatience. You know, we live in a culture that does everything it can to make us impatient. I want it done, and I want it done yesterday. I want it to happen, and I want it to happen now. But endurance and impatience don't go together. Don't run with doubt. I don't know if God's going to take care of me. I don't know if God's going to sustain me. I don't know if God's going to take care, get me through this. So what am I going to do? I take life into my own hands. Don't run with that. I'm going to run and trust Him. Don't run with despair. Giving up. Dr. Falwell used to tell us years ago when I was at Liberty, God can't use a discouraged person. And the idea being there that when we get discouraged and we throw in the towel and we give up, it's hard for God to take us and God to use us. He says, run that race for him with endurance. Yes, it is a grueling race, but stay with it. Run like Jesus ran, verse 2. He says, run looking to Jesus. Now, I want you to see something here. The word that's translated looking means to look away to Jesus. Let me say that again. I want you to write that down. Look away to Jesus. He's, this is a picture he's got. You walk into that Colosseum, you look around, you see all these thousands of people that are looking and watching at you. He's saying, look around, be challenged by them, be encouraged by them. They've been gone before you, they've done it. But then, just like a runner would look around at the crowd, and then he would cue in on and focus on the emperor, and he would start running, looking away from the crowd and to the emperor. He's saying in life, Look around at those who've gone before you, but then you turn your attention to Jesus Christ and to Jesus only. And you look away to Jesus. Look away from everything else and look on Him. Be focused on Him. Be consumed by Him. Now, when we look at Jesus, what do we look at? First of all, we look at His excellence. As someone has observed, that's a feast within itself. Look at the excellence of who Jesus is. Look at His humanity. If we want to see what it means to be human as God intended for us to be human, then we just look at Jesus in His humanity. Look at what it means to persevere, to stay at it. Have you ever thought about Jesus' three and a half years of public ministry? 
He got rejected at his hometown. Now, you know, you go somewhere that nobody knows you, and you've never lived there, and they say, I don't like you, and you don't fit in here. That's not fun to take. But can you imagine going back to where you were raised with the home, your homies? I came out of an urban background, all right, so I don't know if they talk that way here or not. <laughs> but you go back to the people that, that you grew up with, that raised you and all the rest, and they tell you they don't want you. you ain't, you're not welcome at the table anymore. They want you out of town. In fact, they took Jesus in Nazareth and literally tried to throw him off a, a cliff outside of town. I mean, it's bad enough when they tell you they don't want you at the table. Well, then when they tell you to take a hike, and in fact, we're going to take you on the hike. We're going to throw you off the side. They go, we don't want you at all. I went back to a high school reunion this past fall. I hadn't seen some of these people in many years. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> First thing I walked in was I didn't recognize hardly anybody. The hair was, if it was nice, it was white and gray. A lot of it had turned loose. I can't say anything about that. Identify with them. And one of my first questions when I went there was, am I going to be accepted? I mean, this is a crowd that I went to high school with. Am I going to be accepted? These are the teachers that I had. I had a fourth grade teacher who just... Work me over. And I, this is terrible, but I, I just had, have not had nice thoughts about that lady for the last 40 years of my life. You know, I walked in there to that high school reunion, and who do you think walked up to me first? Was that fourth grade teacher. Hi, David. She gave me a big hug, and I felt about this big. We ended up eating dinner with her. <laughs> but I wonder, are they going to accept me? Jesus got rejected by his home crowd. Couldn't even go home anymore because they rejected him. He was beaten. He was mocked. And in those days when they crucified you, the ultimate humiliation was literally they stripped you of your clothing. And you hung there naked. And we always had these pictures of Jesus up on the cross looking down. But that's not the way the Romans crucified. They crucified you eye level with people so they could literally walk up and mock you insult you and spit in your face and that's how he was crucified looking to Jesus looking away to Jesus because you think you got it bad look at what he went through but don't stop there looking to Jesus who rose from the dead three days later Look to Jesus who triumphed over everything that Satan and man could throw at him and know that you triumph not in our abilities and energies, but we triumph in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says that we are in Christ. Looking to Jesus now, notice how he defines him, verse 2. Who is the founder of our faith. Now, there's several ideas bound up in that word. First of all, the idea of him being the founder of our faith is that he is the beginner of our faith. In other words, he wrote the book of our faith. He wrote the content. He wrote the plot. He wrote the conclusion. We don't come up with our own faith. We receive the faith that Jesus already came up with. I don't have to come up with my faith. I don't have to psych myself up in faith. I simply receive the faith that Jesus already has put together. The idea of that word is also of being a pioneer who blazes a trail. It is the, What he's saying here is we look into Jesus 
and Jesus is always already going ahead of us, and He's already blazed the trail. He's already faced whatever we're going to face. He's already gone ahead of us. And so whatever you face, know that Jesus is already there. Folks, I can't stress that enough. He's sitting there looking at this little group of Christians in the room, and they're hurting. There's probably tears in their eyes. Some of them are thinking, I may die before this week is over. And he's saying, listen, whatever you go through, if that Roman soldier shows up at your doorstep, know that Jesus is there with them, and Jesus is on the other side of that Roman soldier and Jesus is on the other side of whatever you're facing after the Roman soldier takes you away. He, once you get to prison, Jesus is already in the prison cell waiting for you when you walk in there. And folks, whatever you and I are facing in life and we are going to face in life, the idea here is that He has gone before you and He has blazed the way. He has gone before us and He has blazed the way. I don't care what I, you and I have to face in life. If we know that Jesus is at least five steps ahead of us, then I can take a step in His Lordship and another step in His Lordship because there's nowhere that I take a step that He hadn't already gone ahead of me and taken a step. And that's what gets you up and gets you going and puts a smile on your face. He is our pioneer, and because of that, He is our Lord. Now, He defines Him next. He says He is the perfecter of our faith. The idea of the concept of perfecter there is he's our coach. Friday night, I guess it was Friday night, I watched Virginia Tech in Duke. And I mourned <laughs> following that game. Everybody I have pulled for in March Madness has lost. I told Helen at halftime, I said, Tech's ahead. I'm pulling for them. They're probably going to lose because everybody I pull for. I pulled for Liberty last week, and they got beat. Well, anyway, I'm watching that game. And I, in particular, I like to watch the coaches when they span it. I was watching Coach K. I used to work with a basketball league back in Chesapeake. One thing I discovered about good coaches, they know how to change their game plan at halftime if things aren't going their way. And Duke came back out the second half, and they were a whole different team than they were the first half. That young man named Zion, he plays like he's got the anointing of the Lord on him. I don't know if he does or not, but he plays like that. But watching a coach, they know the game, they know the players, but they know the game and they know the players because they've already played before. They know it because they've been there, and they mastered it. They've mastered the game. They've mastered their players. They've mastered the game plan. And the idea here of Jesus being the perfective of our faith is that Jesus knows the game. Jesus knows the game plan, and Jesus knows us as players. He knows where to place us. He knows how to use us. He knows how to place us in the game. And our job is to listen to our coach. Why should we listen to our coach? Because he is the resurrected son of the living God. His resurrection proves that he is the Messiah, the son of God. That he's got the wisdom He's got the power. He's got whatever he has to have in order to be our coach. Notice what it says, verse 2. 
he endured the cross. He endured the physical pain of the cross, but he endured the spiritual pain of the cross. Every nerve fiber in his body on the cross screamed out in pain, but in even more, his soul screamed out in pain. Because Jesus had never known sin before he went to the cross. And on the cross, it was like he literally went into a sewer of sin and guilt and shame and walked out successfully. He endured the cross. Verse 2, despising the shame. The word despising there meant it was of no consequence to him. In other words, as Jesus hung on the cross and he was being mocked and he was being rejected and he was being humiliated and his body was screaming out in pain... Yes, it was shameful, but Jesus didn't focus on the shame. He didn't, concentra- he didn't allow the shame to overwhelm him. He said, this shame is of no consequence to me because i got a higher goal that I'm up here for, and I'm going to achieve that goal. Verse 2, he said he despised the shame and had no consequence on him, didn't drag him down for the joy that was, verse 2, set before him. Jesus was focusing on what was eternal. Turning away from what was transient. Now the word that's translated set before him is a fascinating Greek word. It's the idea that you put something in front of somebody in the sense that it's not literally there. But it is so sure that it is going to be there in the future then you can count it done. And what he's saying here is that as Jesus hung on the cross, the Father put victory in front of him. The Father put triumph in front of him. The Father put you and I and him saving us and cleansing us in front of him. And Jesus didn't sit there and focus on the pain and the mockery and the shame. What Jesus, as he hung on the cross, looked at what was coming, and it was like it was already there. And he said, I can keep on bleeding, and I can keep on suffering, and I can keep on dying, because I'm going to keep on resurrecting in three days. I can keep on going through this hell because I'm going to take people to heaven. In fact, he looked over at the thief and he said, Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. I'm going through this to get you to paradise literally within an hour or so. We're heading. You see, I'm not tied to this cross and I'm not tied to this hill. This is just my blast-off zone for where I'm going. Because the Father has already set the victory in front of me. He knew that in three days there was going to be a heavenly homecoming. He knew that he was going to be crowned with honor and with glory. He knew that he was taking his feet, and they said his feet are nailed to the cross. But in reality, his feet were stamping down on the powers of darkness as he hung on that cross. They looked at him and said, his blood is dripping, and he's dying. He said, my blood is dripping because it's redeeming, and it's saving, and it's setting people free from sin. That's what it means to be seated, to have it set before you. I'm trying not to go Pentecostal on you, but it's getting hard. (laughs) Just give me a minute, I'll get there. Notice verse 2. It said he did that, and then he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, any time in Scripture, particularly the New Testament, you see the term seated. It means job well done and completed. When Jesus was seated before the Father, went up to heaven from the cross, sat beside the Father. When he sat down beside the Father on the right hand, it meant the job's done. Now, how does that affect your life? Well, first of all, let me tell you how it affects our lives. 
when Jesus saves you, you don't get half saved. You don't get two-thirds saved. You get 100% saved. When Jesus saves you, we don't have 80% deliverance. We have 100% deliverance. Because that's what it means when he completed it. What does it mean for you and I? It means that when I call on Jesus and I ask him to save me and cleanse me and come into my life, I don't have to take what Jesus did and add my good works to it and add what a nice person I am. What Jesus did is 100% sufficient for my salvation. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It is Jesus and Jesus only. What does it mean for him to have been seated and be completed? It means when this race of life is over with, in his stead, I'm going to be with him. And it means between now and then, when you and I call upon the Lord in prayer, I don't get a hearing with God because I've been particularly religious and good that day. I get a hearing with God. I know he's hearing me. He's going to respond. He's going to answer. He's going to pour out his grace. He's going to pour out his power. He is going to respond. The Spirit of God is going to be at work because Jesus and Jesus only open the way for me to come before the Father. And I go in the person in the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means for him to be seated. Where is he seated? It says that he is seated at the right hand of God. Now I'm left-handed, so I sort of struggle with this right-handed business. At the right hand of God. In the scriptures, the idea of the right hand was the place of dignity and honor. It is the idea of full participation in God's glory. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, he sat in the place of the dignity of God Almighty, the honor of God Almighty, and in full participation of the glory of God. Now, as the runner ran around the Colosseum, he looked up at the emperor, and the emperor would have been seated, and he would have recognized That's the one ultimately I'm running for. That's the one I want to please. And he is the one who's in control of all of this. He's the one who's top. Running the race for Jesus, with Jesus, is what defines us. Not our sins, not our inadequacies, not our problems. But running for and with our coach, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to just thank you this morning. We want to give you praise. We want to give you honor for who you are, for what you mean to us. Jesus, we want to say to you that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. You're the one who wrote the book. You are the one who is our coach. And Jesus, we look unto you this day. And Lord, help us not to get caught up in what's on the floor that could trip us up. Help us not, Lord, allow ourselves to get weighed down with worry and anger and bitterness and fear or pride or lust or whatever it is, God, that would pull us down. Help us to just strip that stuff from our lives so that we focus on Jesus and on Jesus only. Thank you, Lord, that you have surrounded our lives with those who've gone before us who loved you and followed you, and they prove that the race can be run and run successfully to your glory. Lord Jesus, keep us focused 
on you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, in just a moment we're going to sing and <clears throat> I want to invite you to walk the aisle of this church and give your life to Jesus. Say, I want to follow Him, I want to trust Him, I want to walk with Him this day. I want to run life with Him and for Him. If you sense that God's leading you to become part of our church family, we invite you to come and to join here with us. If the Lord is speaking to you in any other capacity, we'd love to pray with you. And the altar is always as open if you just want to come and talk to the Lord. Lord, have your way with us now as we respond to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.